You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Freedom of Species would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional owners of the land on which we broadcast today. We pay our respect to the elders of all of the lands on which we meet across Australia. Apriremo quelle gabbie vili e co-criminali Animal Liberation Animal Liberation Animal Liberation Species brings animal advocacy to the airwaves from 3CR Studios in Melbourne and via podcast. Check out the previous show every Sunday, Out of the Pan, covering all pansexual issues. Um, and that's Sally, always a fantastic show every Sunday, Sunday at 12pm till 1. So tune in next week. In a world where human dominance drives species extinction, ecological collapse, and a climate crisis. Many people are looking for alternative approaches to how humans exist in the world and engage with non-human animals. Multi-species justice is an idea, a concept that's starting to be talked about and gain a bit of traction in as an alternative approach for humans to um, think about the ways that we exist with other animals and ecosystems, the environment. But it's still a new sort of concept, or at least it's one. It's a new one for me, and I imagine it might be a new one to those of you listening. And I wanted to get some experts uh, to come and chat to us about what multi-species justice is, what it means, and how it might be practiced. Bill Lynn is a research scientist at the George Perkins Marsh Institute at Clark University, whose work focuses on the ethics and politi- politics of sustainability with an emphasis on animals and conservation. Fran Santiago Avila is the Big River Connectivity Science and Conservation Manager for Project Coyote and the Rewilding Institute, where he promotes the claims and protection of wild carnivores against killing and harm. Prior to that, Fran was an associate lecturer at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and a postdoctoral research associate at the Carnivore Coexistence Lab. Bill is a founder of Panworks and Fran is a founding member of Panworks, an independent nonpartisan think tank dedicated to the well-being of animals. Today, Fran and Bill will be sharing their expertise and thoughts to help us get a better understanding of the ideas of multi-species justice. Thank you very much for coming along and chatting with us, Bill and Fran. It's a delight to be here. Great. So before we before we sort of just dive straight in, I wanted to um, sort of maybe pick apart the idea of multi-species justice a little bit. Can can one of you perhaps talk to where does this concept begin? Where does it where does it come from? What's what are the origins of this idea of multi-species justice? And then I'd like to sort of separate those two things. What is multi-species? What is justice? And break them down. And what and then what do we get to with multi-species justice coming together? Bill, perhaps would you like to chat about like the history or the origin of where is this coming out of this concept of multi-species justice? Well, it's, it's difficult to say it's coming out of just one space and time because questions about justice, people, animals, and nature 
have been addressed by multiple people at different times in different ways. Uh, so John Rodman, back in the early late 1960s, early 1970s, who was an uh, early, quote, environmentalist, end quote, theorist out of political science, he was focused primarily on animals. That was a time when environmental studies was deeply invested in thinking through and advocating for the well-being of other animals. Um, very different than today when it's primarily a question of human sustainability in the face of, of an abstract biodiversity collapse. And I don't mean by abstract that it's not real. Abstract and it's very abstracted in terms of, you know, large groups of animals uh, with their genetic and landscape um, and ecological heritages. That was different back then when John Rodman was talking about it. And of course, Mary Midgley um, is key, you know, with a godmother of, of animal ethics and animal studies and um, someone who brought a whole panoply of thinking about questions of ethics, of politics, of justice to our relationship to other animals in a mixed community. But for, for me, the person who really crystallizes it as a distinctive way of talking about is Val Plumlee. Um, when she talks about a distinction between um, justice for animals, justice for nature, and justice for people, and thinking through the intersections and interconnections and interdependencies of those, but also their distinctive elements, so we don't collapse one down into the other. And of course, there are people like Fran. Um, I'm a co-author with Fran on one of his works on multi-species justice, Jody Emmel, um, who works on multi-species justice, particularly around animal agriculture and livestock farming. Um, Professor Selmajer uh, from Australia, who's working a lot in, in that arena as well, as well out of sort of a legal studies perspective. So those are, those are some of the roots that we can call upon to think about the past and contemporary discussion of multi-species justice. Cool. And it, and I like when you sort of say, you know, breaking out the um, justice for animals, justice for environments, justice for, for people. Can you talk a little bit about that a little bit more? Maybe, Fran, um, what is it that makes it different to speak about, say, just isolating justice for humans versus multi-species justice? How do we get to the multi-species part of it? And what is what does multi-species actually mean? Um, um, so, yeah, I'm going to back up a little bit sort of to go a little bit more into what we mean by justice. Okay. Uh, right. Uh, justice as uh, a moral concern uh, being usually related to what we owe to and are owed by other beings that we are in relationship with. Uh, it's a concept that uh, also demands a kind of impartiality when looking at a particular situation and how to address it, right? How to treat. Uh, that's why we have this ethical maxim that states treat like cases alike, different cases differently, right? There's some impartiality there, but there's also some attention, and this is critical when we're talking about animals and the environment. There's a lot of attention to relevant differences that result in exceptions and refining and some nuance to 
what we need to uh, be conscious about to actually arrive at justice, right? And it's uh, also a moral value that, that is deployed more often than not in situations of conflicting claims socially, that are socially common, right? So it establishes some sort of institutional and collective response to maintaining uh, a certain level of respect, of dignity, of autonomy towards others when we have conflicting claims against them, right? And uh, so we know that throughout history, especially in Western worldviews, we've had this long anthropocentric tradition of dismissing animals from this type of moral consideration that uh, promotes impartiality, promotes taking into account differences, and promotes fairness a lot towards them. Right. So what multi-species justice tries to do is uh, debunk this human exceptionalism that uh, colors this application of justice just for human beings or human communities as well. So we know that when we establish, when we're talking about justice uh, in relationship to humans, uh, and this is relevant to the issue of animals as individuals and collectives, we don't differentiate and we don't see it as contradictory to promote justice for the individual and justice for the communities that they are a part of. Uh, we, see, we see both of them as interrelated and as advancing each of them simultaneously. And that is what we want to promote in terms of animals within their communities, right? We are not atoms that are sort of just like uh, flying there in uh, by themselves uh, unrelated to anything. So what we're trying to do with multi-species justice is bring this idea of having an ethical duty towards other selves as centers of experience, be them human or not, right? So that that uh, human shape is an arbitrary moral criteria for dismissing others. That doesn't mean that it's not important for actually taking into account other considerations, other traits that those beings may have, but that having a human shape, having human genetics is not a sufficient enough reason to simply dismiss uh, right off the bat all claims of all other beings to uh, consideration to fairness, right? So essentially multi-species justice in a nutshell tries to bring an equitable consideration of those claims alongside human ones. And not only alongside human ones, but alongside environmental ones to human non-human non relations, uh, to human wildlife uh, coexistence, right? So this involves, again, in both individuals and collectives. It involves a horizontal rather than hierarchical consideration of claims. And importantly, it, it needs to have some sort of codification, right? It needs to be explicitly stated what we're going to take into account, but not only what we're going to take into account, but there needs to be a just process as well. So how are we going to take this into account procedurally and is it gonna um, is it gonna result in substantive justice for those beings as well and that's a that's a, certainly a, a point that I'd love to get onto a little bit later is what the just process might look like um, and as you say like accounting for differences and fairness in good justice human justice we do do this um, 
in certain places. I don't think it happens everywhere. Clearly, it doesn't happen everywhere, even within countries who um, might say that they do uh, try to have fair and equitable justice system. Um, but in, in, in terms of multi-species justice, how can we know what the claims of of non-humans might be. I mean, even for for some humans, understanding their claims because we can't necessarily speak to them, they can't talk, um, or they can't express it clearly, uh, can be difficult. How do we how do we understand or know the claims of non-humans? And are we are we limited to certain types of claims, for instance? Yeah, um, there's a lot of ways that we can get an idea of the claims that non-humans as individuals and communities may have against human claims, right? Uh, we know how some beings fare better or worse just, just through observation. We know how some beings fare better or worse depending on the interventions that we have in other lives, right? And those interventions are not only technical interventions, physical ones, but also policy interventions, management interventions that have some individuals as well as communities fare better or worse, right? And uh, of course, science is an indispensable tool for this, uh, disciplines like ethology, but in terms of individuals, conservation, biology, and ecology, in terms of collectives that provide us with information to, to guide us in these assessments, right? Uh, importantly, we know as well, uh, right, that these uh, are individuals that have their own claims. And, you know, regardless of the, um, the science that backs up this, uh, this uh, claim, uh, this ethical claim, we still see uh, largely in wildlife management and conservation uh, policies, management, et cetera, that there is absolutely no accounting, no explicit accounting for this in management plans, et cetera. So step one, I think, for resolving this would be starting with, rather with our interest on what those individuals are, which are usually preserving biodiversity, preserving the viability of those, um, of those species, populations, et cetera, is starting with who are we dealing with here as individuals, explicitly in management plans and policies, et cetera. And for that, you need to take into account ethology. You need to take into account what is the internal life of those individuals, uh, not only cognitively, but emotionally, relationally, socially, right, within their communities, and what makes them fare better. So you need to start by asking the question of how do we actually improve other, other beings' lives as individuals and collectives, rather than starting with the question, what do I want that individual or population to do for me or to look like ecologically, which is usually the question that conservation biology and wildlife management foregrounds, you know, to the detriment of the individuals that it's faced with intervening on. And uh, and I suppose when we when we think about the injustices, because I suppose we need justice when there are injustices. There's clear egregious injustices against animals and ecosystems that we, we we can easily see when we look out out the door, you know, out the front door. And we're not talking about a justice system that necessarily, or a multi-species justice, isn't isn't going into the complex and bloated and and often ridiculous um, justice system justice system that we see these days 
talking about, you know, how high the fence can be next door between two neighbours or, you know, they're, they're, at this point, I suppose we, we never know, but those aren't the, um, the detailed types of justice we're talking about, I suppose. We're talking yeah. about, you know, claims to life and to, to health and, and these sorts of things which are, tend to be fairly clear to, to identify. Right, and, and even, even claims that are um, that fall short of claims to life, right? Uh, I don't, I don't mean here to sort of uh, single out only lethal management. Uh, there should be, we should highlight like they, that there are um, a lot of other interventions that are harmful for animals, socially, emotionally, uh, physically, that aren't lethal management, right? Uh, there's a lot of policies that seem like we are forced to implement sometimes for sometimes the benefit of some communities that we forget sometimes that they are so invasive and affect the lives of these individuals so much. Okay, uh, uh, a good example of this is uh, trap neuter return, which is an incredibly invasive procedure that affects the life of those uh, individual animals that are subjected to it from that point onwards. You know, there's no going back after TNR and they are limited from then on out on what they can, how flourishing they can can be as individuals because you are basically prohibiting their reproduction. And it has turned, the conversation almost has turned into that, that is dismissed uh, to the extent that we just need to do it. Uh, for some people, right? And uh, that is dismissive of the interests of those animals, regardless of if it w- we would land on the side of still needing to implement it to some extent. It needs to be considered, and it needs to be considered to the extent that those individual beings are harmed to a very substantial extent by this. And it, they deserve more recognition and more respect than, you know, we need to do this, right? And the numbers that you put on these management plans of of how many are we how many are we neutering and what the effect is on other populations, right? And that's what we try to promote by justice for individuals as well. Yeah. And Bill? I just want to add something into that that connects up with your um, raising this question of, of justice as being primarily this response to injustice, which is very much true. Um, and, and, and Fran's talking about the concept of harm being more than just lethal harm and the importance of us thinking through in this sort of a, with a strict ethical lens what it is our impacts on other animals to be. That, you know, when we go back to justice and we think about, uh, Fran says this, talked, uh, gave this word, fairness, and that's often how people think about justice. Most of the time when they think about fairness, they think about fairness in the sort of the procedures of justice. So you have rights, you have due process, you have protections of the individual or various groups against harms um, that have not been thought through, claims that they can make um, against the state, against others. When the people have those claims, you have obligations to think those through and act on legitimate claims. That's essentially what rights means. There's also this substantive piece, and we often react to questions of substantive justice in terms of thinking about it in terms primarily of injustice. One is oppression, one is the alleviation of past discriminations. Um, But there's this other much more 
positive, proactive notion of justice, which involves the question of what is a good life? How ought we live, not just in terms of reacting to negative impacts in our lives and the lives of others, but how ought we live together? What constitutes a good life? How do we promote the well-being of other animals? What should we promise to other animals and to ourselves about how we ought to relate and when we're not fulfilling those promises, um, um, sort of rejigger, renegotiate, uh, reinvest ourselves in a covenant that we have together to do right by each other. That's another side of justice that I think really needs to be pushed forward because it's very much at the forefront of our minds. Um, and was the forefront of our minds when we were writing the article that Fran led. I, I suppose I, I don't necessarily think about it this way a lot, but I suppose the intention of, of well, maybe in a in a, uh, a non super hyper politicized world where politics are just for the elite and all that sort of jazz, the intention of of governance and politics and um, and creating legislation is for that sort of justice, I suppose, Bill. It's the justice that is for creating the environment that provides a good life for citizens. Um, and I suppose that we could think about politics, although I imagine it, it often fails, um, is about that, that, that approach to justice, um, perhaps. Very much so. Very much so. I, Aristotle has a has a framing of this where, you know, uh, politics is ethics writ large, meaning that politics is infused with ethical norms. And it's about taking the ethics that we think about in our everyday lives and using that as a helpful way to think about governance of our collective lives together, about doing right by each other. And what does that mean? Justice is one of the concepts that comes out of that relationship between ethics and politics. Now, of course, so much of politics is very partisan. Um, and even the politics on the left. So a good um, analogy here is with identity politics. So much of identity politics is about claims for rectifying past injustice, and so has a reactive um, stance to these questions of injustice, but is not thinking through substantively what it is that we owe each other outside our identity groups and how we can stand in solidarity to do right by each other across those identity groups. Um, now, that doesn't mean that identity politics is wrong, but what it means is that the focus solely on the identity of your group can sometimes blinker one to these larger questions of justice of what we owe each other, what we should covenant with one another. How is it that we establish a good life of a matter of substantive justice for all, whether it's people, animals, or nature? And Fran, you wanted to make a point there? Yeah, I was just uh, going to um, build on what Bill just mentioned, right? And sort of uh, what you were commenting on as well, which is, um, Part of the point of uh, the implementing justice is that, first of all, justice, if it's implemented, that means that it's necessary and that we can implement it. So the fact that we should means that we can actually implement and enforce justice. And that, that justice is necessary because 
basically there are no unlimited resources in a society. So this give and take, this balancing of our claims is necessary because we just can't please everyone uh, um, forever, right? So that you need some sort of uh, trade-offs there that you need to balance, right? But also that makes justice necessary. What makes justice possible is that there is some minimal, moderate struggle or conflict between the parties. So in cases um, of extremes, lifeboat cases, for example, uh, usually philosophers think that there is no place for just, justice there because conditions are so extreme that there is no way, way to balance claims. But one of the uh, objectives of justice is to increase that space of justice as possible. Therefore, by implementing justice, what you're trying to do is to alleviate that struggle, that conflict between parties, right? So to the extent that we can implement that as multi-species justice, what we're trying to do is not only give non-human beings, individuals, and collectives an equitable consideration of their claims, we're trying to alleviate the struggle between the human and non-human sectors, right? So we're trying to recognize each other's claims without undermining each other or each other's well-being or their existence, right? So to the extent that we focus on, just, on justice, we are able to more effectively reduce that type of conflict. Right, socially, and um, and that allows us to consider far more than in terms of relationships, in terms of capabilities, in terms of needs and vulnerabilities that we would have, that we could have uh, considered before, before trying to implement justice. I think that's a good point to have a a quick break, and so we'll first hear fifty wolves howl at night uh, from the Wolf Conservation Centre. Fran, do you want to just um, tell us a little little bit about uh, Wolf Conservation Centre and what we're, what we're hearing here? I, I think that was Bill. I think oh, that, Bill. Uh, Bill, yeah. do you want to tell us? Sorry. Sure, sure, Bill, no, happy to, happy to. The Wolf Conservation Centre is in Salem, New York. It's one of the first urban um, wolf conservation centers. It's involved in the species survival program and wolf re recovery in North America. Has about 50 wolves on uh, that are present, some red wolves, some Mexican wolves, some gray wolves. Has a, a group of ambassador wolves. I did a lot of uh, presentations with one of those ambassador wolves, Atka. Atka sadly died several years ago. Um, and it's an absolutely wonderful, magical place. And and the the these fifty wolves howling at night is is beautiful. So here it is. Well, well. So let's. There's a story behind that. I'll tell you after we listen.
Melbourne Pride will be taking over Smith Street and Gertrude Street Precinct on Sunday the 13th of February between 11am and 9pm. This free event is a state government initiative delivered by festival partner Midsummer to celebrate the 40th anniversary of the decriminalisation of homosexuality in Victoria. The Fitzroy Precinct will be transformed into a huge street party with two music stages, activities, community stores and more. For more information, visit midsummer.org.au. Midsummer is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to 3CR Freedom of Species, 855 AM Melbourne Radio. And you just listened to 50 Wolves Howl at Night from the Wolf Conservation Centre. And uh, Bill was going to tell us a little bit about this um, when, when we came back. So, Bill, could you tell us? Sure. The, the Wolf Conservation Centre um, was founded by uh, Henry Fair, who's a famous environmental photographer, and Hélène Grimaud, who's a famous uh, classical pianist. And at first it was very small um, and it was primarily the ambassador wolves and the education program uh, related to that. It then went through an enormous period of growth and had these very, very large enclosures in which they could house separate populations of endangered wolves. Um, And some of the neighbors started to complain because wolves were howling at night. And so they needed someone to monitor the wolf's howls. And, but it was during the middle of the winter and no one could stand going out at night into the forest overnight uh, to listen to them and monitor how long they howled and how often they howled to deal with questions of noise complaints. So they called me because I'm Canadian and I like to winter camp. And so I would sleep out. Um, uh, on the ground or in an open trailer between the enclosures and listen to the red wolves, the Mexican wolves, uh, the gray wolves, and often the coyotes external to the enclosures howl like that all night long. It was absolutely gorgeous. Sounds amazing. And, uh, and I suppose you're also um, leading us beautifully into our next point of conversation, which is how how would this um multi-species justice work practically and i was i was going to suggest because you both have experience um with uh large carnivores in north america and and discussing um those issues and their persecution um you've just you've just brought up a great topic bill what is the what would what would a multi-species justice approach be to noise pollution complaints from humans (laughs) and the wolves um, in the conservation centre. Well, that's interesting. It's very interesting that the real complaint, as it turns out, wasn't the fact that wolves could be heard if people went outside their mansions. The real complaint is before they did not see uh, a, a chain wire fence that constituted one side of the enclosure. Um, and that was, that was the, the real complaint. The complaint about the wolves howling, uh, howling was simply adventitious. So painting the fence green and brown, which let it blend into the background and, and visually disappear, resolved that complaint. So what that speaks to is is really having a dialogue about what the community's concerns are and trying to do one's best to address 
those concerns without sacrificing the well-being of other folks, such as the wolves, who, um, for no fault of their own, were not releasable into the wild, needed a place to stay, um, and were at this uh, wolf conservation center. Mm. And, and Fran, perhaps, so in our previous um, uh, previous part of the conversation, you both identified there's these maybe two sides to multi-species justice. One is um, is maybe resolving conflicts between uh, between individuals or groups and and something that we might see in courts, for instance. And the other is this um, more thinking about the possibilities of a a good and and justice society and trying to develop that um, in and think about how we how we get there. There's these two outcomes or these two two aspects to it. Um, Fran, can you tell us a little bit about Project Coyote? The issues that coyotes are um, are facing in North America, and and how a multi-species justice lens or approach might be used within within that um, conflict or within that um, that future that you imagine for coyotes there. And I I imagine you've thought a, bit, a lot about this. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, I have. Um, if if we think wolves right are persecuted in the U.S., then uh, it's only because we we haven't looked at coyotes and the amount of coyote killing that goes on in the U.S. through not only hunting seasons on coyotes or open trapping, but also wildlife killing contests, which are basically contests where you essentially prize uh, open a season on a particular area and uh, to uh, wanton killing, basically, and you prize individuals that either kill the largest number of of animals or the largest uh, individuals on certain categories, right? And this is open to families, to uh, anyone that's interested in a lot of US states. And it's truly, truly a moral tragedy. And before we before we get too deep into um, the discussion, can you tell us like who are coyotes? Where where do they? I mean, over here in Australia, um, we have dingoes and and whatnot. And I think most people have certainly heard of coyotes, heard of wolves, definitely. But what is where do coyotes live? Like where do they interact and engage um, throughout the the US? Is it just in one little spot? Is it all over the place? Are they mountain dwellers? Are they you know? Who are they? Yeah, yeah coyotes are the uh, North American song dog, basically. It's a, a canid species that it's native to North America. It's uh, smaller than a gray wolf. It's, uh, they're a little bigger than a jackal. But you would say a jackal smaller than a gray wolf. Uh, so it's uh, uh, the North American mesopredator, canid mesopredator. And it's native, or it was native to the Western U.S., but with the extermination of predator populations throughout North America, with the arrival of uh, European colonizers, uh, basically the, um, the extirpation of a lot of large predator populations has allowed for the colonization 
of North America, basically from west to east coast by coyotes. And basically most environments, they are um, huge, very successful, very efficient generalists. So you find them in rural areas, you find them in, in uh, very populated, very densely populated cities, uh, pretty much everywhere where you can find resources for them to thrive in. For a canid that is relatively small, that feeds mostly on rodents, etc., then uh, rural areas as well as cities provide a lot, a lot of resources. I uh, so um, coyotes basically are, um, because they are so abundant, uh, because of the extermination of large predators, then they are seen as a problem now. So you see how humans just keep killing down the, taxon the taxonomic sort of like uh, ladder there. Uh, for for certain groups, right? So now you have coyotes are implicated, um, uh, are perceived as dangerous when they are hanging around communities, um, um, uh, mistakenly so, because there are hardly any uh, conflicts that turn out to be uh, harmful between coyotes and humans. If you educate people on the appropriate interactions, right? Not feeding coyotes, uh, not, uh, not sort of harassing them, uh, not engaging in any sort of disruptive behaviors towards them when you find them in urban communities, right? But nevertheless, there are issues with coyotes also preying on domestic ungulates that are bred for consumption in the US because there's a lot of grazing on public lands in the US that are not fenced and therefore you're gonna have these individuals, uh, these animals being killed by coyotes. Now that is exacerbated by the issue of lethal management because lethal management usually exacerbates the issues of conflicts as well as increases the reproductive rates of coyotes. So by lethal management, you are both increasing these conflicts, which is contrary to justice, right? Justice wanting to decrease the level of struggle, the level of negative interaction. You're increasing that at the same time that you're, in, you're disrupting the social fabric of those families. Uh, you're disrupting packs, and therefore those individuals are more often they're not going to choose to go for different prey possibly easier prey, possibly domestic animals, right? So that is sort of the plight in a nutshell of coyotes in the U.S. There are, are, there are millions of coyotes that are killed in the U.S. every year. And um, it is in large part because the question of wildlife management, there's no question of conservation in the U.S. with coyotes because there are, they are a very uh, successful species. So more often than not, you get the opposite issue with wildlife management and coyotes, which is how do we reduce conflicts? How do we reduce the populations? And uh, it's not done in any way that foregrounds or even minimally considers the interest of coyotes as individuals, as families, as a social structure that self-regulates, as we've seen, as we've seen that dingoes also do when they're liberated from lethal management as well. So there are a lot of, uh, there's a lot of convergence with issues with dingoes and lethal management of dingoes and their social structure in Australia, right? So we should start, you know, right off the bat. The question is this one that we're asking right now, who are coyotes? What are their cognitive, emotional and social lives like and how do we address this adequately enough where we consider those capabilities that they have, cognitive, emotional, social, alongside the needs that we have 
or perhaps reducing conflicts, but more often they're not reducing the perception of conflicts, which is the main issue with coyotes and large predators in general in the US. It's the perception of conflicts, but it's the issue when you look over and over at statistics of conflicts, be it attacks on humans or attacks on domestic animals or attacks on pets, even hunting hounds, even attacks on hunting hounds that people use deliberately in these areas where you can put them at risk is that there is hardly any issue here, but the issues that exist are blown out of proportion by minorities that want to harm these animals. Why? There's no, you know, I'm not gonna uh, claim that these individuals want to uh, wantonly harm these animals, but they're non-knowledgeable of who these individuals are and public agencies aren't doing the work of educating individuals when, to consider, to respect these beings. And and I suppose, yeah, if, if we had a justice, if, if there was a um, justice lens or a multi-species justice lens that we thought about when we when we considered actions as a, as a population, as a public, then we might um, reconsider lots of these things. And the, the idea that you say, like, it's more about perception, uh, the one that the example that always comes to me in terms of it's, about perception than actual, um, actually there ever being an issue is, you know, jaws and sharks, great white sharks in particular. Um, after the movie Jaws came out, there, there's like maybe a handful of um, shark deaths around the world every year. After the movie Jaws came out, we go out and we we decimate shark populations globally um, because people have this now this perception that sharks are bad and they're killing people and and whatnot. When in fact, it's absolutely not the case. But there's no stopgap. There's no stopgap in and there's no process that says, hey, before you go out and do that or before we um, do anything like this, you need a you need a um, you know, consider the claims of each side, and and in doing so, we would we would clearly, um, in in the vast majority of cases, come down on the side of the animal because there's often no claim from the human human side. It is is it simply perception um, and beat up. Yeah, and that's that's sort of the um, where you see the blind side in or the bias in wildlife management and conservation biology because. The, uh, the rebuttal to any sort of harm that these species or the individuals of these species are, are being faced with from wildlife management and conservation biology is there are enough of those individuals. So that is not a concern. You know? And uh, that is a huge issue there for a discipline that is basically in at least the public sector at least the public sector and not only the U.S., but in countries in general, is charged with mediating our relationship with wildlife. And those agencies are telling you uh, implicitly that that just doesn't matter because if it mattered, it would be in management plans, it would be in statutes, and it's not. So don't worry about it. So even if you're a technician, say you're a technician that cares a lot about coyotes and you work for a public agency, even if you wanted to consider the interests of coyotes in your particular area, the documents, the statutes, the management plans allow no space for you to do that. So it's not even that it's bad because it, um, 
it dismisses, it relatively dismisses them, is that it offers no space for considering them. So that if you have a constituent that is complaining about a nuisance uh, that's caused by these individuals, those individuals are going to be gone. Right? They're not no claimants. They're, they're, they're not they're not part of the um yeah, yeah the there's consideration. No process, right? There's no process for the, the technician or the manager to even try to argue for a lower, um, a less harmful intervention, you know? Mm. So if if it turns out that you're within the system, your hands are tied as well, no matter how much you care about the individuals that you interact with. And that's very, very sad, very sad. <laughs> Bill, you had something to... So what Fran's talking about, if we were to take this back to the legal system and, you know, uh, as a matter of disclosure, neither Fran and I are lawyers, so you get a lawyer who wants to talk about multi-species justice, and, and they're going to emphasize perhaps a different way of framing this, because we're thinking about justice primarily in this ethical uh, uh, point of view. But legally, in, you have a, 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 in the Anglo-American traditions, which extend over into Australia, New Zealand, and elsewhere, you have a bifurcation between persons and property. Um, and property often included chattel. That could be women, children, slaves. They were all considered property of basically men at one point in time. But it's but and even though we've we've gotten rid of that notion of chattel around human beings, we still have that idea of animals as property of individuals or property of the state. Um, and as property, we don't have to give them consideration as non-human persons, as individuals who have claims on us ethically about how we ought to live with them. And that's a, that's a root problem in questions of multi-species justice that Fran has just been speaking to in detail. I mean, uh, we have another example here uh, in eastern North America, where I live outside of Boston. Um, coyotes have migrated from the arid southwest of the United States because of predator depopulation elsewhere, northwards into Canada and the prairie provinces, eastward into the southern United States and the eastern United States, up through Algonquin in the north woods of Ontario, which is where I'm from, uh, interbred with Algonquin wolves, who are a distinctive species of wolves in northern North America, um, picked up a little dog along their way over into New England, and we now have an eastern canid, sometimes called a coy wolves, what other authors and I have labeled as a species canis oriens, that is 40% wolf, uh, 50% coyote and 10% dog. Instead of this uh, Eastern coyote being the 25, 30 pound creature that they are when they're out West and that you see enormous morphological and behavioral differences uh, between them and wolves over here. Um, they're very, they're big. They're 60, 70 pounds sometimes. Um, and they're starting to pack up in larger numbers. They're bringing down deer um, and larger prey, which the smaller Western coyotes don't normally do on their own. And this has created a hissy fit. So the response of Massachusetts wildlife was simply to extend the season. 
Now, this occurred for precisely the reasons Fran is saying. They had no space in their consideration of the well-being of these creatures for their individual claims or their well-being as non-human persons. They saw them as a resource. The population wasn't threatened, so they expanded a killing contest. Uh, well, they still allowed killing contest and they expanded the season. Recently, Massachusetts has taken the step after public outcry to eliminate the killing contest that Fran was talking about before. What this illustrates is the failure to engage in strict ethical and scientific scrutiny in wildlife management to mediate in a just way our relationship to wild animals, both as individuals and as communities. So let's go to a very quick um, quick song. Uh, this is Made Up in Blue by The Bats, and we'll pick up the conversation after this.
Freedom of Species on 3CR 855 Radio. We are here with Fran and Bill, who are both researchers and um, working in uh, conservation and um, uh, wildlife management and ideas around wildlife management, um, both with backgrounds in ethics and philosophy. Uh, and we are discussing the concept of multi-species justice. And we've had a good chat to, to now, and we're going to have to wrap up pretty quickly because we're, we're rapidly um, running out of time. But the last point I'd like to um, touch on, Fran or Bill, is um, like, how do we get like what what needs to happen for multi-species justice to to be the approach that we use? You've just both spoken um, quite extensively and um, impactfully on the the plight of of coyotes and and wolves and and carnivores in in North America, and this happens all over the world in every country with all types of species, not just carnivores and lethal control but other other animals and even conflicts between between different groups of animals and things but the one thing that i'm hearing a lot is that that um animals are just not considered they're not part of the conversation they're not part of the ideas of justice um at this point so where do we go from from here how do we try to if people are uh impassioned to to consider multi-species justice or get their local council to consider multi-species justice when they're thinking about pest control, you know, pest with quotation marks. Like what what do we need to do? Where do we go? How do we make um, multi-species justice uh, a political concept that is um, tangible? Yeah, I think there, um, I think it's to an extent inevitable to start with um, who we are dealing with, as I mentioned but also foregrounding not only who we are dealing with, but starting with the promotion of an ethics of care and justice towards those individuals. And care is so important here, right? Uh, We need to begin by uh, who those animals are and with evidence that backs up, right? uh, Those, those scientific uh, facts with very serious ethical impl- implications for the protection, for the management of these, uh, of these beings. So let's start by exploring them, exploring what animals want and our responsibilities towards them. And this cannot start without empathy and compassion for those individuals, right? And uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna um, quote here um, uh, Dean Curtin, who's a, an ecofeminist and Buddhist philosopher, and he states that essentially for for starting this, compassion is morally basic. And this is where I connect multi-species justice, and in our work, we connect multi-species justice with compassionate conservation, because we do believe that that is the starting point for arriving at justice, right? So that compassion, uh, multi-species justice can promote the the promotion of animal claims beyond compassion by institutionalizing that higher bar for consideration that compassion promotes, right? And that that promotes through strangers in a community so that you know, uh, Dean Curtin has this uh, quote that I love that states that justice is not 
in principle at odds with compassion. They are complementary perspectives and the only kind of justice worth having is a justice administered with compassion because compassion is fundamental to the way we relate to others because we empathize with others first. So we start with the emotion of mm -hmm. wanting to relieve uh, another being's suffering, right? And to discern the appropriate response to that suffering, which would include justice, right? So I would stress compassion as this idea of a relational, reciprocal, reciprocal relationship uh, with a mixed community of not only humans, but people, animals, and nature. And that is certainly more inclusive of diversity in organizing our moral experience and in the beings that we can include to consider within that moral experience. And additionally, it highlights the central component, the central effective component in ethics so that we can't get to justice if we don't care about the individuals we are dealing with. And that starts with promotion of who they are and the scientific evidence for that, the ethical implications for that through public agencies. So the, the public agencies have to do the work of educating themselves and educating the public on seeing these beings as beings rather than their instrumentalization. And I think that's a, um, that's a great point to, to wrap up on. And it, and it also sort of clearly um, speaks to how we would, I, I imagine that most people um, or a lot of people see that as an appropriate, see compassion as appropriate part of human justice, both in in both arms, you know, not not only in in the administration of justice in conflicts, but also in the um, creation of a just a just world. And compassion goes hand in hand with both of those things. So thank you very much for coming and sharing um, these ideas and thoughts, Bill and Fran. Really appreciate it. Fantastic chat. I think we could have gone for another three hours, but maybe we'll have to tee up another conversation sometime. Yeah, happy to. Love to. Love to. This was enjoyable. Thank you. And if any of you have any feedback out there, um, send an email out to info at freedomofspecies.org or um, via Facebook or Twitter at Foz Radio. We're here every Sunday from 1 till 2. Uh, tune in on 855am in Melbourne and we're streaming live via 3CR website, 3cr.org.au and you can find us wherever you get any of your um, podcasts. We will see you next time. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.